So, this week, if I'm being honest, we got a bit too involved with the bonfire night celebrations in Hesham, where we live, and we didn't get round to recording the episode that was planned with Emma, which will be coming out next week instead. In place of that, what we've decided to do is to re-release a series of short mini-sodes that we actually recorded before the first numbered episode of Consistently Eccentric. Now, it has been available before, um, but we noticed looking through the analytics that actually very few people have got that deep into our back catalogue to have heard it, which is quite a shame as it's not only a very, very good story, but it's also probably one of the most researched stories we've ever done on Consistently Eccentric. So I've dragged it out, uh, polished it up a little bit, and it's available for you now. I hope you enjoy, and normal service will be resumed next week. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... Oh, I should just add that because we originally recorded this as six separate mini-episodes, there is a bit of a hard cut in between. So, to let you know when those hard cuts are taking place, you will hear this noise. Now that that's explained, on with the show, really. Should we get started? Let's. With episode one mm-hmm. of our six-part epic experience. I'm very excited. So, the late 1860s was an amazing time to be getting into the business of merchant shipping. Britain was leading the way in the transition to steam-powered ships, with a third of its cargo being transported using this new, more efficient means of propulsion. Very good. So we were world leaders. We are the age of steam. Yeah. Right, okay. In boats that would continue to sail at a constant speed, regardless of wind conditions. So made us more efficient. Efficient things, yeah. So when businessmen William Aiken and James Littleburn decided that they would form a shipping company in Glasgow, They, of course, decided that they would not purchase a single steam-powered ship. Their new line would be exclusively sail-powered. Why? Ah, well, there seemed to be two reasons. Go on. Firstly, sailing ships were becoming cheaper. Well, doy. Because they're obsolete now. Well, yeah, I mean... (laughs) In the same way, if you want to buy a a hoover with a bag now, I believe they're very, very cheap. Can you still do those? I... We're getting off topic, but I think you, there must still be one that is making one with a bag. Why don't we have one of these? This is bringing it back. Okay, so firstly... You know my love for all things retro. Ships were becoming cheaper to purchase as it became clear, obviously, that new technology allowed more reliable predictions of when you're going to arrive somewhere, which is a boon for a business. I mean, mm-hmm. logistics, come on. Wow. And secondly, James Lilburn liked sailing boats. He had been the Commodore of the Royal Northern Yacht Club and he considered it a point of principle to hire only the most skilled sailors. Oh, mate. You know when there's that old phrase that goes something along the lines, and bear with, my brain is addled on a daily basis, corona. Um, but isn't there an old thing of don't make your hobbies your job? Yes, there is something can around that. that. Be a, can that be applied to this man? Well, we're going to see. Okay. So, even in 1867... The way that these two people were running the business appeared very anachronistic. William and James would personally supervise the loading of cargo and the dispatching of the vessels, so they'd wave each individual ship off. Cute. Understandably, though, prospective crew members were pleased at the idea of working for a company that respected their talents. And the company were soon ready to commence their first voyages. Ooh. Which were round trips. This is a bit optimistic when it's the first thing she's doing to Adelaide in Australia, transporting what? a mix of passenger and cargo. That's a... On, to, on triple-masted sailing boats, they're going to sail you from Glasgow to Adelaide and back. That's that's their route. Well, quite clearly they're not. <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm not being funny, but that is a long way. It is, but sailing ships have made it to Australia before. How do you think we put all those convicts there? I don't know. I didn't do history, Joe, so it's it's all a mystery to me. History, the mystery. Fantastic. Well, Williams and James had intended to call their new fleet of sl- ships because the Scottish, the Clan Line. I like that. Were they tartan? Tartan flight. Oh, do they have tartan sails? They may have had lots of ideas for the Clan Line. 
but unfortunately, a rival shipping company had registered the name one month before. Oh. This was an early indicator that the company might not have the best of luck. Oh. But undeterred, they settled on a name. Go on. Was it as good? Was it as snappy? The Lock Line. As in, loch. Yeah. Well, a, a large I'm body, gonna, a large body of water in Scotland. I'm not going to embarrass myself by trying to do a Scottish okay. accent. You know my accents are poor do, but yeah. not as snappy. Well, they would eventually run 25 individual ships to and from Australia. Okay, so, so they, they got there. Yeah, so they started out with six, okay? Mm-hmm. So early signs were good, and by 1870, they'd been able to buy two brand new ships to add to the original six. The Loch okay. Lomond and the Loch Leven. Oh, you see, I like what they're doing there now. What, they're calling them after Loch? Yeah, yeah, I like that. However, it was in the 1870s that things took a bit of a turn. Ooh. Yeah. So on October the 24th, 1871, the Loch Leven became grounded in the Bass Strait off the southern coast of Australia. So that's oh, the little yeah. bit of water that goes between Australia and Tasmania. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that bit. Luckily, though... All the crew were able to be saved successfully. In fact, Very good. the situation was so hospitable in terms of the weather that the captain decided that he'd row back, return to the ship in order to retrieve the important documents that he keeps in his cabin. Okay, very good. I, I'm assuming ship's charts. It may easily have been his pawn. It could have been anything. I mean, Whatever truly, a captain keeps in his um, locker. Money, wallet, keys, phone. <laughs> keys, yeah. Got all the way home. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> all the way back to his home in Glasgow and went... <laughs> Oh, shit. <laughs> Left them on the frigging boat. Yeah. Right. But back to Australia. Back to Australia we go. <laughs> I'm just thinking what, you know, what do blokes carry? That's the most mm. important stuff, surely. Yeah. So he was rooting around the ship mm-hmm. uh, and it abruptly capsized and he drowned. Dude. He was the first victim of the lock line. Oh, no, this is... But oh. he wouldn't be the last. Oh, no. And that is your little snippet. That's <gasps> all you get in until... Taste- until Just tomorrow. Just a session. Oh, until tomorrow. It's like an epic bedtime story. Yeah. Tomorrow, when we see what the rest of the 1870s held for the okay. Loch Well, I cannot wait. Hmm? Here we are again. Uh, here we are again. Here we are again. Mm-hmm. Round two. As you know, last time we left the brand new Loch Line shipping yes, company. With its first victim. Its first loss. Oh, we say loss. Okay, we're not saying victim. Is that a bit brutal? <laughs> <laughs> I know I know in America corporations are technically people but I don't yeah. think that was the same in Victorian Britain but anyway okay. it's okay because every shipping company will experience some losses over time it's factored in okay especially in the second half of the 19th century when the long haul trade routes to America and Australia were becoming more crowded with ships so okay you know the, still a bit brittle on the families left behind like but all right I mean that captain kind of brought it on himself. Yeah, I know, but mate, if he'd lost his keys, like we'd established last time, I mean, he couldn't get home anyway. Do you know the quality of most people's locks at that time? I'm pretty sure Again, you could have fiddled it with... History the mystery. Do I have to keep repeating? This is going to be my catchphrase, obviously. I know nothing about history. I didn't do history, Joe. I did geography. I can tell you all about Oxbow Lakes. Fantastic. There are no Oxbow Lakes in this story. Okay. So... William Aiken, James Lilburn, not too concerned at the loss of the Loch Leven. You know, okay. especially as the insurance money, because of course you insure your ships, would help to cover the costs. And they still had quite mm-hmm. a few ships running that profitable trade route over mm-hmm. to Australia. Unfortunately, it wasn't the last ship that they lost in the 1870s. Oh, dear. So at 2 a.m. on the morning, chilly morning of the 22nd of November, 1873... That would be cold. Yeah. The French steamer, SS Ville de Havre, was speeding along through the North Atlantic at 12 knots. Okay. It had recently been lengthened in order to accommodate more passengers for its profitable route between Le Havre in France mm-hmm. and New York. Ooh. So it's doing well. It's, it's been given nice. an, ex, an extra bit of ship. I don't know how they do that. Whether they just. Is, is that cut and short? Well, that's what, what you were going to say, cut and short. Oh. But anyway, it's longer. It's longer than it was. Oh, did they just put a bigger bonnet on it? Well, I mean, who knows? Unfortunately for this French ship, okay. the triple-masted Loch Urn was also in the same area of the North Atlantic. Right. 
It was trialling a potential new route for the lock company between Glasgow and the east coast of America. So they were thinking of expanding. Has been done. I mean, Mayflower and all that. Yeah. So the captain of the lock urn didn't quite notice the French steamer until it was, and I quote the captain of the lock urn. Please do. Dangerously close. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) So to be fair to him, he did ring his bell. Why? What? Ling-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling. Ship. Bit late, mate. And no, he also tried to perform some evasive manoeuvres. Okay. But this only succeeded in him smashing the bow of the urn right through the centre of the Ville de Havre. Right, okay, well... And as we know, if it's a cut-and-shut job, that's probably the weakest point that you well, could hit on the ship. as agreed. But I'm not, I'm not being funny. If... If you've got to the point where you are slamming your boat through the middle of another boat, dangerously close doesn't quite in the, do it justice. In the middle of the North Atlantic as well. This is a large body of water that this, this accident happened. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit close. Well, so it hit it with its bow right in the centre of the ship, essentially splitting the French ship in two. Right. I mean, was the captain having a wee or something? How did he not notice? He was ringing his bell. He was doing everything he could. No, not the bell. How did he not notice this massive new, brand new, steaming cut and shut job chuffing its way across the water? We'll never know. Well, I want to know. Uh, Dig deeper. I can't tell you. What I can tell you is things were made even worse for the passengers and crew of the Ville de Havre when they tried to launch the lifeboats. Because you see, just before they'd gone, Mm. lengthened ship, they wanted to make it look nice they decided to repaint the lifeboats. Unfortunately, they decided that they'd just paint them where they sat on the deck. And the paint had essentially glued them to the deck. So they couldn't launch most of the lifeboats. I mean, there are names for people who do stuff like that. And I don't think I can use it right now. But mm. use your imagination. There there is some... You probably probably could have um, sort of, you know chipped away at the paint and got the lifeboats moving. The problem mm. was the Loch Erne had done such a good job of ramming this ship that oh, it uh, sank in 12 minutes. Yeah, I was going to say, that thing is going down. Uh, with the loss of 226 souls. Oh, mate. The urn itself yeah. managed to save 77, presumably with the captain hiding in his quarters out of sheer embarrassment at what just occurred. Well, I'm, the only explanation was that he took his eye completely off the ball for about an hour mm. not to notice the other bangingly massive ship that was chugging its way over to America. I mean, dude. <laughs> well, it appeared anyway that it was only going to be a delay rather than a reprieve for the people he'd saved because the urn itself mm. was shipping quite a lot of water and seemed um, like it wasn't oh. really going to be able to make it back to port because where, the, where this crash happened mm-hmm. was kind of the midpoint between you know the body of land on one side of the atlantic and the body of land on the other side of the the atlantic deepest bit the the deepest bit was where they they decided to have this crash but luckily for all involved an american ship Mm -hmm. called the tremendous tremountain did you say that as american well it's actually called the tremountain but i caught i can't help but put tremendous in front of that did you say it was American? It was an American ship. Of the Tremountain arrived. <laughs> of course it was. And it did manage to get everyone from the survivors and the people from the Loch Urn on board before the Loch Urn slipped beneath the waves and Ooh, was no more. I mean... Now, the Urn is okay. Mm-hmm. The Urn was replaced the same year by the Loch Arn. Completely different ship. Different Loch? One was the Loch Urn, one was the Loch Arn. I mean, I, I don't know Scotland that well. Different locks? Yes. Okay, very good. Uh, which returned to sailing the Australia route because it was thought it was probably safer. And this went really well until 1878. Oh. The Arn had made it almost to the Australian coast. Mm-hmm. So it made it all the way mm-hmm. across the ocean, yeah? Mm-hmm. It encountered heavy fog, uh, making okay. it unlikely that they'd be able to see the Cape Otway lighthouse, which is the thing you'd need to see to make sure you didn't crash. Okay. Also, it turned out that the chronometers on the ship weren't working. Also, the captain had not been able to take a reading for days due to bad weather. Okay, so it stacked against them somewhat. Yeah, and predictably, when the fog lifted, they were greeted with looming cliffs. 
uh, rather than the nice harbour that the captain probably wanted to see at that stage. Oh, no. Evasive action again. You know how good these captains are with their evasive action. <laughs> yeah. It was in vain and the ship ran aground. Right, I'm not... Right, just, just a side note, you know, if you're going to run a shipping company, maybe not hiring your mates from the yacht club. You know, I'm just <laughs> saying. <laughs> like actual captains, you know, not just Gerald with his boat. But he brings his own hat. Well, I, he might bring his own hat and his nice little thing with the epaulets and all that, but he's not good. Okay, well, the jolt of them running aground caused the mast and rigging to fall, which killed okay. some people on the deck outright. <gasps> but also it prevented... What were they doing out there? Probably looking at the cliffs and going, ah! <laughs> probably. But also, it yes. managed to make it so that they couldn't launch the lifeboats. Of the oh. fifty-four people on board, yeah, only two survived, and they only made it to land after five hours in the sea. Ironically, at a place called Lockhart Gorge, mm-hmm. presumably the place that the now X ship was named after. Oh my word! So they did manage to get two passengers mm. to Australia that time. Very good. Well done, They then. just couldn't get back. Well, no. <laughs> so, just a year later. So now we're in uh, 70, uh, 1879, yeah? Okay. Off the coast of Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. On the 11th of January, the first mate of the Loch Sunart, a man called David Higgy, mm-hmm. he spotted a schooner ahead of his ship. Okay. They were on the way south from Glasgow on the first leg of another trip to Australia. So you go down from Glasgow between Ireland and Britain and yeah. then you cut round and start heading off towards mm-hmm. uh, towards Australia. Fine, yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, ships in that little stretch, quite mm. common, you'd see a lot of them. So it wasn't a problem. Mm-hmm. He assumed the schooner had seen them. It was probably moving anyway. So, so long as it wasn't stood stock still, mm-hmm. there was no way they were going to hit it. Yeah? Yeah, but they did. Uh well, David Higgy, he decided he wouldn't signal that the lock steward might need to turn or anything. The captain was fine. This schooner was going to move. We're all good. Mm-hmm. Good on David Higgy. He's, he's only a first mate, but he's acting like a captain. He's taking that responsibility, yeah? Mm-hmm. This proved to be a bit of an error, uh, as the thing he had seen was not another ship. It was, in fact, a rock. Oh, my God. Right. And as far as I can tell, not a ship-shaped rock. It was just a rock. And as such, it remained stubbornly in place as the lock sonart ploughed into it. Fantastic. So not only have you hired a bunch of inept yacht fanatics, but also somebody who needs to go to Specsavers. Well, phenomenal work. Luckily, there, because, because they were in such a popular shipping lane, all 45 passengers and crew were able to escape with their lives and were saved. So nobody died. That time. That time. And David Higgy? Yeah. Was suspended from duty. For an eye test, hopefully. For three months. Because that'll learn you. To to single-handedly cause the sinking of a ship, you can go and think about what you've done for an extended holiday. But it was paid as well. Mm. What can you do? I was only suspended, so I'm assuming there was some pay going his way. That is horrendous. Yeah. I mean, truly, if, you, if you're going to do that, <clears throat> I mean, you're talking demotion, at least, aren't you? I mean, truly, well, you, you wouldn't want him spotting rocks again or spotting I don't, I don't know if it written again. down whether he came back at first mate or whether they passive-aggressively made him second mate. Uh, mop boy, I think <laughs> is what I'd make him. <laughs> Drag your bucket You're starting right from the bottom mop again. boy. So... If you keep in score, go on. In the 1870s, that's mm-hmm. four sunken ships. Indeed. But at least Aitken and Lilburn knew what had happened. Because as we will learn in episode three, that was not always the case. Oh, and increasingly wow. not the case as the Lochline boldly entered the 1880s. Oh, can't wait. Mm. Bring on round three. Uh, more Lochline goodness. Yep. Right. Okay, so. As the lock line entered the 1880s, mm-hmm. it was already developing a bit of a reputation for being unlucky. Yeah. Could yeah. say deserved. De- well deserved. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Not the best reputation, shall we say. The four documented sinkings of the 1870s, however, were not the only ships that were lost that decade. Right. In 1875, the Loch Lagan had set off from Glasgow, and, as it was a ship of the Loch Line, it managed to hit the Tuscar Rock Formation off the coast of Southern Ireland almost immediately. Oh, right. It didn't sink, but it did need to make some repairs in Liverpool. And wisely, at this point, the 20 or so passengers who were on board decided to quietly transfer themselves to another ship to complete their voyage. Wow. Okay. So, right. Okay. And they were pretty lucky passengers because with only cargo on board, the captain of the Lagan decided, "Mm, is it worth still going? And eventually, yeah, yeah, it is still worth going. Uh, It's still worth the effort of going to Australia. Right. So they decided to depart Liverpool, and by the twenty fifth of November, the ship had made it all the way to the South Atlantic and was just preparing to make a turn east round the Cape of Good Hope. Mm-hmm. And then, go on. What? No one knows. Oh come on! That's that bit of Blackadder. The ship and the thirty eight crew members were never heard from again. Missing, presumed dead? Missing, presumed dead. Taken by the sea. Nah. I I say they weren't even going that way in the first place. Decided to hit the Caribbean and rum it up for the rest of their lives. Well, that's a nice thought. It is, isn't it? Although a ship disappearing without a trace was not a unique event. Right. In the 1880s, the lock line was on a mission to make it appear almost mundane. Because wow. in 1881, uh-huh. the Loch Marie was taking extra precautions against going missing. It okay. sailed from South Australia with another ship for company. Mm-hmm. And wisely, it was a ship that wasn't part of the lock line. Mm. Instead, it was a ship called the Don Diego. Which is a nice name. It is a good name. They managed to get one day out from Australia, when oh. in heavy seas and even heavier fog, the two ships lost sight of each other. Okay. The Don Diego finished its journey alone, presuming that the Marie was either a little way behind or a little way ahead of it. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm sure everything was fine. Right. I'm assuming that's not the case. About a month later, another ship, the Murmurous, spied a huge iceberg as it sailed across the South Pacific towards Cape Horn. Ominously, there appeared to be quite a bit of floating debris at the base of this iceberg. Oh my goodness! It was it was the kind of debris you might expect to see in the aftermath of a ship accidentally smashing into a big wall of ice at full tilt. <sighs> However, because they were quite sensible on the murmurous and they did not want to get too close to said iceberg. Well, why would you? The debris was never formally identified as belonging to the Loch Marie, so yeah, it remains think... lost. Yeah, but I think, well, it's not though, is it? Because that is that it was fairly that ship. Well, there's there's a lot of corroborating evidence. I will give you that. Yeah, yeah, I thought there might be. I mean, in terms of bad luck, I think it's not even bad luck anymore. I just think it's poor management. Poor um, management. You know that they're putting the best captains in charge of these ships. Yes, yeah. I, I, sorry, yeah. I mean, let's not forget Clive from the yacht club and. <laughs> Brian and Gary and whoever else they decided to scrape <laughs> together to form this kind of two-bit shipping operation that they've decided to put together. Put together. Oh, don't worry. Bells, bells. Two years after the Loch Marie, yeah, the Loch Fine, the Loch Fine, Fine or the Vine, Fine. No, Finny, Fine, Fine was hauling a cargo of wheat back from New Zealand. Good cargo of wheat. Okay. She had rounded the Cape of Good Hope without issue and was now sticking close to the western coast of Europe in order to avoid the rough seas of the Mm mid-Atlantic. So the learning lessons all the time. If you can avoid being somewhere stranded in the middle of the Atlantic, do that. (laughs) Good advice. She'd made it all the way to somewhere in northern France. Just off the coast of northern France. Okay, when on not, the fir- not far away then. When on the 1st of September, a heavy gale blew through 
the English Channel. I mean, some of this disaster is weather based. Now, I don't know I don't know how much you can hold them accountable for weather. Mm. But they do seem massively underprepared for seafaring weather is all I'm saying. It's like, you know, kind of like if you're out at sea, you would think storms, gales, big waves, winds, rains, well, it's, it's, all these things. It's done all of that. It's, it's just off oh. the coast of France and it's only a gale. Right. Mm. The ship never made it back to Glasgow oh and it God. is assumed that the 42 passengers and crew all drowned somewhere... In near, the English Channel? Somewhere near the English Channel, yes. Oh, my God. Well, that's so, just embarrassing. People have swum that. As you can imagine, three ships completely disappearing within the span of eight years further cemented the idea that the lock line was indeed cursed. Or a bit shit. Mm. There, was e- <laughs> there was even time to fit in one more little disaster in the 1880s. Go on. Little, just a tiny just a disaster. Little one. Uh, when the lock Gary... Say. was demasted off the Cape of Good Hope in a massive storm. However, Do they have to go that way? Well, you've got one of two options. You can go e- on. You can either go south um, and you can turn east and you can go all the way round the bottom of Chile, mm-hmm. which is the Horn, Cape Horn, mm. or you can go all the way... No, that's if you go west. And if you go east, you have to go around the Cape of Good Hope at the bottom of South Africa. So those are your two options. You're going around a, a, a cape of something. You're either going around Horn or Good Hope. Or if you want to do a full round journey, you've got to go around both. If you're going to circumnavigate to do your journey. Okay. But, you know. Either, either of these cross the Bermuda Triangle just for good measure? No. Right, okay. So the cape, the Loch Gary, mm-hmm. demasted off the case, Cape of Good Hope in a storm. Mm-hmm. The crew almost definitely assuming they would become just another mystery mortality statistic for the lock line there. Just a number at this just stage. Just a number. But fair play to the crew of the Gary because they mm-hmm. managed to survive the storm and sail the Gary, which had no masts at this point. Well, they're not they're steering it then, aren't they? They're not sailing it. They managed to sail the Gary. No. 2,600 miles to Mauritius. The key point of that being, if they were just off the Cape of Good Hope, they did not need to sail two over two and a half thousand miles to find the nearest land. They were very close to the continent of Africa at that point. Fair enough. Yeah, they decided to land somewhere just off India. Why not? Because that's them. Mm. But, you know, ships survived. <sighs> and maybe... Maybe this was the sign that the look of the lock line ships was finally changing. No, it, it won't be. And by saying that it survived, I mean, you, you'd be hoping more from a ship, wouldn't you, really? Than, well, we made it. We may not have masts. We may not have sails. We may not have rigging. And two of the two of the crew have got eye twitches that we think are completely irreversible now. But we have made it somewhere. Yeah, to Mauritius. <laughs> Not even to our destination. We are now in the Indian Ocean. We should be in Glasgow, but we're in the Indian Ocean. So go us. No, I'm not calling that a success. I'm calling that by anybody else's scale an unmitigated disaster. There's just it's just not a fatal one. <laughs> okay. That's that's an uptick for this particular company. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And we're gonna find out next episode. Oh, whether... Another cliffhanger. Whether their look does change in the 1890s. Oh, well, I'm not uh, massively optimistic. Shall we just put it that way? <laughs> she of little faith. Oh, she of little faith. <laughs> she who is completely right to have little faith. <laughs> Very good. Oh, did you hear my back crack then? That was really painful. I think I just dislodged a disc. <laughs> Can you still sit close to the microphone? <clears throat> then we're fine. Yes. Are you ready to find out what the lock line were up to in the 1890s? Hit me with it. Okay. With only 10 years until the dawning of the 20th century, steam-powered ships had overtaken sail in both military and merchant shipping. Mm-hmm. And the lock line still 
steadfastly refused to buy anything other I mean, than sail. This is the Argos of boating world, well, isn't it? You know, Argos refusing to to advance their online catalogue and essentially become the Amazon of the toy industry, thus folding itself. This is the Argos of boating world. That's a reference no, I don't get. I don't mean Argos. Who do you mean? Toys R Us. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding work. Oh, it's been a long day. Yeah, well, Go on. It's about to get longer. <laughs> Go on. So this, this steadfast refusal was in spite of both passenger numbers and cargo tonnage rapidly declining for the company. Go on. Because it turns out people quite like their stuff to get to where they wanted it to go. And not wet. On time. And not wet, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, it forced mm-hmm. the good good men and women of the lock line to try out new routes. They had to try and change something up. <sighs> Go on then. In January 1890, so very start of this decade, mm-hmm. the lock Moidart was on one of these new routes, shipping nitrate from Chile wow, okay. to Hamburg in Germany. Is this the thing to practice with? Is this the... So for this, they would have had to have gone round the Cape Horn. Right, okay. To get the nitrate and then back round again. Because okay, Cape Horn okay. in Chile. As you, so you go. said last time, yeah. Uh, so they had made it across the Atlantic on mm-hmm. the way back and they were just skirting the coast of Holland. Right. So they were within view of the coast of Holland. I mean, spitting distance, really, when you think about it. Yeah, of Holland, which is is known for being flat and calm. Well, yes, I and mean, reserved. So you imagine mill home pond, of flat clogs, sea, clogs, windmills, and tulips, isn't it? If we're being stereotypical, yes. If we're being um, stereotypical. <laughs> so, yes, they were skating along mm-hmm. the beautiful, pristine. You know, like a mill pond oceans, mm-hmm. uh, and managed to capsize within view of the Dutch coastal city of Kalensug. Well, that's just a little bit embarrassing. What did they hit? There's no report that they hit anything. They just capsized. In my head, the boat—the boat goes from being <laughs> the right way up to being completely inverted. Well, it wouldn't in the I'm, space of a second. Capsize doesn't really mean that, but I mean, did well, one of them? have a fag break i mean luckily for them the dutch had a lifeboat station at kalantzug okay and they were able to launch within minutes brilliant but Mm. the good crew members of the lock line ship had done such an excellent job of capsizing themselves that even with the lifeboat crew being able to launch immediately they were only able to save two of the 32 crew members Wow. Mm. Now, at this point, fate was presumably bored with only one disaster per year. Well, yes. Yes. And decided to double up in 1894 with a pair of particularly bizarre disasters. Oh, hit me with it. I'm ready. Firstly, in January, the Loch Shield sank with a full cargo of beer and whiskey at Thorn Island, which is just off the coast of Wales. Amazing. Now, unusually for a Loch Line ship... All the crew were saved due to the efforts, again, of the local lifeboat crew. Oh, you see these guys? Yeah, so the guys of the Angle lifeboat crew in Wales Mm -hmm. saw these inept sailors... (laughs) (laughs) Probably laughed. ...in distress and went... Inwardly snorted and went, go on, we'll save them then. I, I like to think at this point that when I say the lifeboat crew went and saved them, they waded out to where the ship was. And just help the people stand up and walk back to the Welsh coast. Oh, dear. I mean, you could imagine people living on the coast again and there's another one of those crappy boats going past. You're right. Well, the problem is Mm -hmm. that even though everyone's alive, Mm -hmm. the locals quickly realised that there was a wrecked ship off the coast full of beer and whiskey. Yep. And that's when things took a little bit of a turn for the worse. Because two local men right. drowned trying to recover kegs of beer from the wreck. Oh. And another man managed to actually retrieve a case of Scotch whiskey, mm-hmm. then very quickly died of alcohol poisoning. Well, when you say tragically, mm. 
I mean, you've got to kind of be a little bit responsible for your own actions, have you not, at that point? It's still, it's you know, still a tragedy. I mean, okay. Divers are still looking for more of the lost booze to this day because apparently there is a thriving market for sea salvage bottles. Yeah, there Despite is. Despite the fact that whiskey doesn't age once it's been put in a bottle. So Does it not? an 11-year-old bottle of whiskey that's yeah. been at the bottom of the ocean for, in this case, over 100 years... Yeah. is still just an 11-year-old bottle of whiskey. Well, what happens to it? Nothing. It just sits there inert. Um, oh. um, you know, if if there's any kind of um, leakage in the bottle, it's undrinkable. So there are people who go out and buy these. Just to have them? And they cost thousands. Some of them don't even what? have labels on. You buy an unlabeled bottle of something that you can take Joe, your chances drinking. I see drinking. a gap in the market. Let's buy some bottles. You can wee in them. I'll make a label. We'll rub some dirt on it and call it salvaged. We can make a fortune. Nobody'd know. Yeah, until Come on, there's rich idiots here. Let's, let's <laughs> get some money. The first person is unfortunate enough to try and drink it. <laughs> Why would they? You said they didn't. Yeah. So that was the first tragedy okay. of the year. Okay. No, you say tragedy. The second tragedy of the year, uh, the second tragedy of the year, even <laughs> as I put my teeth back in, uh, happened on the Loch Etive on the twenty-first of September. Okay. And it should have been a great day because it was the sixty-third birthday of Captain Stewart. Hmm. He turned sixty-three that day. Oh. Unfortunately, he oh. promptly dropped dead. What? Why? Yeah. Well, hopefully it wasn't as a reaction to his surprise party. Well, one hopes. So his crew, confronted with the, the freshly Dead made captain. corpse of a captain, <laughs> hmm. on his birthday no less, decided to do the honourable thing and fling his body into the sea, rather than returning uh, to port to bury it. And considering they were within two days' sail of Queenstown in Ireland, it did seem a little bit cruel. Yeah, I mean, friends and family back home and all that. Yeah, we're just going to chuck him over. Fling him over. But, you know, that they weren't making a lot of money, the lock line, at this point, so they well, needed every penny they could get. They couldn't They couldn't afford two days not sailing <laughs> just for one dead captain. All right. They had to carry on. And again, because this is the lock line, there was yeah. time for one last tragedy to squeak in before the end of the decade. Go on. In April 1899, the Loch Sloy sank just off the amusingly named Kangaroo Island in southern Australia. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Rather less amusingly, 30, 30 of the 33 people on board drowned. Oh. And this included five passengers who really should have done their research and known a bit better. I mean, had they not been kept in the loop? Had they just had their eyes shut? Well... They, they obviously hadn't been keeping score because no. in total, go, go on. as Death the new count. century was dawning, yep. 463 <gasps> people had lost their lives sailing on lockline ships, or approximately 14 people each year. Wow, that's not good, that's not good statistically, is it really? Yeah. Not, not really. Um, and not surprisingly, the company would never again run at a profit at any point in the, 19th century, in the 20th century. Well, no. They would never run at a profit in the 20th century. No. Mm. Wow. Okay. But that's not to say that they didn't continue into the 20th century. Well, I was assuming. Which is where we're going on the next episode. Saddle up. Let's go. A brave new world. A brave new world. Same old shit. (laughs) Same old chip. (laughs) (laughs) Amused myself. So, mm-hmm. we've made it to the 20th century. I know. A and brave al- new dawn. And although the lock line was no longer profitable by this time, Mr. Aiken and Mr. Lilburn still refused to give up on their dream of sail power. Sim- is, it, is it a dream? Is it a dream at this point? Or is it a nightmare? And, I mean, who really are they doing it for? It's... it's I'm going to go back to the yacht club again. It is, it's, it's them living out some kind of weird yacht club fantasy that is just essentially killing hundreds of other people. Well, they decided they were going to I mean, sink some more him? money into the line. To, <laughs> sink. To keep... that, was an, that was an unfortunate... Um, <laughs> it, it wasn't intended to be a pun. Oh. No, sorry. I'm not that good at writing. No. But they wanted to keep it limping along as long as they could. Uh-huh. And they were so dedicated to the, co- to the cause that in 1901, 
when the Loch Venachar Venachar the Loch Venachar was struck and sunk by the SS Cato whilst minding its own business at anchor in Tameshaven so it was in a port it was and it was it was struck by another ship and sunk struck as in hit as in the other ship hit it while it was sat at anchor in a harbour Okay, well, I'm I'm not counting that as their disaster. Well, let it carry on. Okay. So they decided that they would have it salvaged and refitted rather than give in and replace it with a reliable and presumably not cursed steam vessel. Okay. So they raised it from the depths. Uh, they had it refitted and it was good to go again, yeah? No, it's never as good the second time round. They were rewarded for their sheer bloody-mindedness mm-hmm. when the Venachar subsequently disappeared in 1905. What? Yeah. With the loss of 27 lives. So it was another disappeared <gasps> ship. Although it Keep has, good hope. No, it hasn't oh. stayed disappeared because it was found <gasps> when? in 1976. Where? It, it was another victim of the infamous Kangaroo Island. Oh, my giddy aunt. So it nearly got there. Kangaroo Island is quite a small island and they've managed to sink two ships just off it impressive did the first did the second one hit the first one i like to think so i'd like to think so <laughs> but it's okay because between the two separate sinkings of the venachar the lockline yep. managed to lose a further two ships from their ever dwindling fleet so how, between how are they between, firstly, who's making these between 1901 and 1905 they had two separate disasters oh my giddy okay so oh. firstly in 1903 the Loch Long's captain, James Strachan, mm-hmm. he was having a bit of a crisis. He was questioning if it was safe to try and sail from New Zealand round Cape Horn, out of season, with a heavy load of nickel ore. What's that? Nickel ore. Oh, no. Mm. Um, because obviously having something that heavy in the bottom well, of the ship is going to affect your I mean, ability to deal with storms and things. I am no expert, but as my non-expert self, it ain't something I'd be doing. Well, it didn't really matter because they didn't manage to make it past the coast of New Zealand. Oh, God. Sinking with all hands after hitting one of the Chatham Islands in a fog. So they hit uh, one of the Chatham Islands. Don't know which one, but they, they managed to hit one. Oh. And sank. Right. And then the next year, in 1904, the Loch Karen crashed into another ship called the Inverskip. They do that. They do that with unswerving accuracy. Mm. Accuracy, don't they? Really? Probably hit this one amidships as well. Oh, probably. Well, the incident cost the lock line thirty thousand pounds in damages, and they had to sell the Karen immediately after the incident in order to raise some of the costs. Sell it? Was it still floating? Yeah. It would later go on to be sunk in another collision on the eleventh of October, nineteen fifteen. Oh, your birthday. Yeah. Oh. And it was not the only ship to sink after being sold by the lock line. Because changing a name doesn't break a curse. Right, I'm not... Right. Bringing back to who is making these... Are they made out of lollipop sticks? Are they made out of old bits of table and hope? I mean, what... Seriously, what are they made of? A mixture of wood and iron at this stage for sailing ships. Just outrageous. I mean, I would be questioning my supplier. Yeah. I mean, and, and questioning the people's eyesight... You can, if you sell a ship to a cursed and company, yeah, I know, it immediately g- becomes a cursed ship. You can't blame the shipbuilders because I'm guessing they built lots of ships that didn't have this kind of record. It was just the ones that they then subsequently sold to this small Glaswegian shipping company. Okay, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know whether I agree with so, curse. There was an again because we know that they like to squeak in a few more disasters towards the end of a decade. Of course. There was time for one more victim to be claimed before the lock line finally had to give up trading. Wow, go on. The lock Katrine was demasted twice in three years, in both 1907 Mm -hmm. and 1910. Wow. Each time led to the death of several crew members as the massive piece of wood fell to the deck, where you will... Happened to find crew members. Crew most members, of the time, yeah. and that became jam. I assume. <laughs> crew jam. Crew yeah. jam. <laughs> Which took the final death tolls attributed to the lock line to 
520 over just 44 years of trading. Oh, mate, that is too many. And so, in 1911, the Lockline finally had to admit... That it was god-awful. They had run out of funds. They had... Crew. Pretty much, (laughs) you know, run out of ships. I'm guessing crew were starting to actively avoid them. What, you, what, you, what crew would they have left? They've killed mm. them all. They're either jam, they're lost, they're at the bottom of the sea, they're oh. inept. I mean... <laughs> but, as as we're going to find out in the epilogue, <gasps> this was not the end of the curse. How? They're not trading anymore. Oh, another cliffhanger. Have you enjoyed your week with the lock line? I have. You know I love a good boat. Well, are you ready for the epilogue? I am. What does epilogue mean? Afterwards. Oh, right. After the story. <laughs> after bit. Right, okay. The after bit. Okay. The nub end. Are you ready okay. for the nub end of this I juicy am. tale? Go on. So, although, as we said, the lock line was no more, mm-hmm. the company had been left with nine of their original fleet of 25 boats still seaworthy. I mean, how they have a single boat beggars belief but go on these nine were sold to various other shipping companies who were obviously unaware of the terrible curse that afflicted them it was a massive sigh then (laughs) in in the last episode we spoke about the crash the crash prone Loch Karen which sank under new management but it wasn't the only ship that couldn't quite adjust to life outside of the Loch Line Uh, right so as a starter, yeah. in 1905, the former Loch Nevis, okay. now Octavia, nice, decided to, to start things off dramatically mm-hmm. and exploded just off the what? coast of Argentina. Exploded from what? It exploded. It was carrying coal, which I know is flammable, but you don't imagine it would spontaneously combust. Right. But this, this, this boat had failing in its DNA, so it blew up just off the coast of Argentina. Oh. A place called White Bay. Um, Though miraculously, and I have no idea how this could be the case Mm -hmm. with spontaneous boat combustion, the crew survived. It's because it's the boat that's cursed, isn't it? It's not the crew. Yeah, they weren't lock crew. crew. They're not lock crew. (laughs) Obviously. Then. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I'm too bit stunned, right? Okay, Okay. Well, in 1915, the former Loch Torridon managed to sink off the coast of Ireland in spite of the fact that it was carrying a cargo of very buoyant timber on board. Okay. So it was full... Of wood. of, ...of things that floated and somehow still managed to sink. Yeah, okay. Well, I was sceptical. I mean, people might remember last episode. I was sceptical of the curse. Mm. I don't think you can call it anything other, really, can you now? Well... Because this is just ridiculous. Again, adding weight to what you said with the last one. Yeah. The crew, all of them survived. They were picked up by a steamship that just <gasps> so happened to be passing. So to this point, the two former lock ships have gone down, but they've not managed to bring a single crew member down with them. Because it's not... Oh, that's so not odd. Wow. Yeah. Um, we're we're kind of going to blow a hole in that theory oh. now. Because finally, during the First World War, both yeah. the former lock broom mm-hmm. and the former lock Ryan were sunk by German ships while shuttling supplies across the Atlantic Ocean. Oh. So those two, they definitely sunk, Yeah, but I'm not sure we can attribute that to the curse. We may need to, you know, attribute that to... Hitler. Turn of, no, World War One, darling. Not Hitler. Not Hitler. Is this Cousins? This is the Cousins. Right, one, yeah. okay. This is Warring Cousins. Okay. And that's as close as we'll get to proper history, okay? Okay. <laughs> Thank However, you. I, I know you don't, and I don't want to end the series on a downer. No, it's been a, it's been a story of hope, and for most of it, optimism. So let's let's get back to that. Absolutely, because we did say that there were nine ships that were sold. Yes, and to this point, we've only talked about five that sunk. <gasps> Therefore, there were four ships, four heroic ships that managed to survive until wow. they were taken out of service. With no major incidents to their names. Go on. They are. Yes. The Loch Runnock. Wow. Which was retired in 1909. Nice. The Loch Garve, which was retired in 1913. Mm-hmm. The Loch Ness, <gasps> that was retired in 1926. Oh. Well, 
I say it was retired in 1926. It was bought by the Australian Navy and it was blown up as part of a target practice exercise. Oh, that's a bit of a sad end, that. I know, but at least it... It, it didn't... Know, yeah, the plan, absolutely. The, the plan was definitely like for Kirstie the Loch Ness Mc... to sink in that thing. And there were definitely no crew on board. Unless okay. someone really hated someone. So, oh, you're, you're on that one. Okay. So that's okay. And finally, mm-hmm. the Loch Tay, mm-hmm. which gets a super special mention as the longest lasting ship ever to hold the Loch name. Wow. It was only scrapped in 1958. Shut the front door. Yes, which means, if you're paying attention, it had double the lifespan of the rest of the lock line put together. Go on, tell me it just lived its entire life in dry dock or something like that, and it never actually went to sea. It was sailing, and it was running cargo right up until 1958 (gasps) when it was scrapped. It had a long and productive life, did the lock day. That should have been on some kind of pedestal. This company was a, absolutely appalling. <laughs> yeah. Well, that is the final, the final piece oh. of the story of the most accident-prone shipping company ever formed. Uh, which I don't think you could call it anything else. Its final statistics. Oh, go on. It lost ships at the rate of one every two point five years. Wow. Lost workers at the rate of fourteen per year, <gasps> and ultimately had a survival rate. Of approximately 16%. Cursed. Cursed. And do you know what the saddest bit is? Go on. The final victim. The final victim. James Lilburn, the owner, drowned. Mr. Yacht Having crashed his own sailing yacht. (laughs) (laughs) Just off the coast of Scotland. (laughs) That's not true. I made that last bit. Oh, that would have been brilliant. <laughs> it wouldn't have been brilliant for James. Oh, I'm crying. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, and there you go. That's the lock line. Oh, brilliant. Oh, I have enjoyed it immensely. The crew didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.